0: CHAPTER Twenty OF THE FLIRT. by Booth Tarkington. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Valentine Corliss, having breakfasted in bed at a late hour that morning, dozed again, roused himself, and, making a toilet, addressed to the image in his shaving-mirror a disgusted monosyllable, ASS however he had not the look of a man who had played cards all night to a disastrous tune with an accompaniment in scotch his was a surface not easily indented he was hard and healthy clear-skinned and clear-eyed when he had made himself point-device he went into the parlour of his apartment frowning at the litter of malodorous relics stumps, and stubs, and bottles, and half-drained glasses, scattered chips and cards, dregs of a night session. He had been making acquaintances. He sat at the desk and wrote with a steady hand, in Italian, Most illustrious Moliterno. We live but learn little. As to myself, it appears that I learn nothing, nothing. You will at once convey to me by cable five thousand lira. No, add the difference in exchange, so as to make it one thousand dollars which I shall receive, taking that sum from the two hundred and thirty thousand lira which I entrusted to your safe-keeping by cable, as the result of my enterprise in this place. I should have returned at once, content with that success, but as you know I am a very stupid fellow, never pleased with a moderate triumph, nor with a large one, when there is a possible prospect of greater i am compelled to believe that the greater i had in mind in this case was an illusion my gentle diplomacy avails nothing against a small miser for we have misers even in these states though you will not believe it i abandon him to his riches from the success of my venture i reserved four thousand dollars to keep by me and for my expenses and it is humiliating to relate that all of this except a small bank-note or two was taken from me last night by amateurs. I should keep away from cards. They hate me, and alone I can do nothing with them. Some young gentleman of the place, whose acquaintance I had made at a ball, did me the honour of this lesson at the native game of poker, at which I, though also native, am not even so expert as yourself, and, as you will admit, Antonio, my friend, you are not a good player when observed. Unaided, I was a child in their hands. It was also a painful rule that one paid for the counters upon delivery. This made me ill, but I carried it off with an air of carelessness creditable to an adopted Neapolitan. Upon receipt of the money you are to cable me, I shall leave this town and sail immediately. Come to Paris, and meet me there, at the place on the Rue Aubert, within ten days from your reading this letter you will have, remaining, two hundred and twenty-five thousand francs, which it will be safer to bring in cash, and I will deal well with you, as is our custom with each other. You have done excellently throughout, your cables and letters for exhibition concerning those famous oil-wells have been perfection, and I shall of course not deduct what was taken by these thieves of poker-players from the sum of profits upon which we shall estimate your commission i have several times had the feeling that the hour for departure had arrived now i shall delay not a moment after receiving your cable though i may occupy the interim with a last attempt to interest my small miser various circumstances cause me some uneasiness though i do not believe i could be successfully assailed by the law in the matter of oil you do own an estate in basilica at least your brother does these good people here would not be apt to discover the difference, and the rest is a matter of plausibility. The odious coincidence of encountering the old cow, Pryor, fretted me somewhat, though he has not repeated his annoying call. And I have other small apprehensions, for example, that it may not improve my credit if my loss of last night becomes gossip, though the thieves professed strong habits of discretion my little affair of gallantry grows embarrassing. Such affairs are so easy to inaugurate, extrication is more difficult. However, without it I should have failed to interest my investor, and there is always the charm. Your last letter is too curious in that matter. Licentious man, one does not write of these things while under the banner of the illustrious Uncle Sam. I am assuming the American attitude while here or perhaps my early youth returns to me. A thing very different from your own boyhood, Don Antonio. Nevertheless, I promise you some laughter in the Rue Aubert, though you will not be able to understand the half of what I shall tell you, particularly the portraits I shall sketch of my defeated rivals, your spirit shall roll with laughter. To the bank, then, the instant you read. Cable me $1,000, and be at the Rue Aubert not more than ten days later. To the bank, thence to the telegraph office. Speed. V. C. He was in better spirits as he read over this letter, and he chuckled as he addressed it he pictured himself in the rear room of the bar in the Rue Aubert, relating, across the little marble-topped table, this American adventure, to the delight of that blithe 'er ne'er-do-well outcast, of an exalted poor family, that gambler, blackmailer, and merry rogue, Don Antonio Moliterno, comrade and teacher of this ductile valentine, since the later days of adolescence. They had been schoolfellows in Rome, and later roamed Europe together unleashed, discovering worlds of many kinds. Valentine's careless mother let her boy go as he liked, and was often negligent in the matter of remittances. He and his friend learned ways to raise the wind, becoming expert and making curious affiliations. At her death there was a small inheritance, she had not been provident. The little she left went rocketing, and there was the wind to be raised again. Young Corliss had wits, and had found that they could supply him, most of the time, with much more than the necessities of life. He had also found that he possessed a strong attraction for various women. Already, at twenty-two, his experience was considerable, and in his way he became a specialist. He had a talent, he improved it, and his opportunities altogether he took to the work without malice and with a light heart. He sealed the envelope, rang for a boy, gave him the letter to post, and directed that the apartment should be set to rights. It was not that in which he had received Ray Vilas. Corliss had moved to rooms on another floor of the hotel, the day after that eccentric and somewhat ominous person had called to make an investment. Ray's shadowy forebodings concerning that former apartment had encountered satire. Corliss was a materialist, and at the mildest estimate an unusually practical man, but he would never sleep in a bed with its foot toward the door. Southern Italy had seeped into him. He changed his rooms, a measure of which Don Antonio Moliterno would have wholly approved. Besides, these were as comfortable as the others, and so like them as even to confirm Ray's statement concerning a reading from Homer. Evidently, this work had been purchased by the edition. A boy came to announce that his roadster waited for him at the hotel entrance, and Corliss put on a fur motoring coat and cap, and went downstairs. A door leading from the hotel bar into the lobby was open, and, as Corliss passed it, there issued a mocking shout, Tordor, Oh, look at the tordor Ain't he the handsome Spaniard? Ray Vilas stumbled out, tousled, haggard, waving his arms in absurd and meaningless gestures. An amused gallery of tipplers filling the doorway behind him. Go and take Carmen buggy ride in the country, ain't he? Good old tordor He quavered loudly, clutching Corliss's shoulder how much you s'pose he pays for that buzz-buggy by the day, gentlemen? Naughty Tordor, stole thousand dollars from me, makin presents, diamond cresses. Tordor, I hear you been playin' cards. thats not nice. Tordor, you're not a goo boy at all. You know you oughtn't waste Dick Lindley's money like that." Corliss set his open hand upon the drunkard's breast, then sent him gyrating and plunging backward. Someone caught the grotesque figure as it fell. "'Oh, my God!' screamed Ray. "'I haven't got a gun on me. He knows I haven't got my gun with me. Why haven't I got my gun with me?' They hustled him away, and Corliss, enraged and startled, passed on. As he sped the car up Corliss Street, he decided to anticipate his letter to Moliterno by a cable. He had stayed too long. Cora looked charming in a new equipment for November motoring. Yet it cannot be said that either of them enjoyed the drive. They lunched a dozen miles out from the city, at an establishment somewhat in the nature of a roadside inn. And, although its cuisine was quite unknown to Cora's friend, Mrs. Villard, an eager amateur of the table, they were served with a meal of such unusual excellence that the waiter thought it a thousand pities patrons so distinguished should possess such poor appetites they returned at about three in the afternoon and cora descended from the car wearing no very amiable expression why won't you come in now she asked looking at him angrily we've got to talk things out we've settled nothing whatever i want to know why you can't stop i've got some matters to attend to and what matters she shot him a glance of fierce scepticism are you packing to get out cora he cried reproachfully how can you say things like that to me she shook her head oh it wouldn't surprise me in the least how do i know what you'll do for all i know you may be just that kind of a man you said you ought to be going cora he explained gently i didn't say i meant to go i said only that i thought i ought to because Moliterno will be needing me in Basilicata. I ought to be there, since it appears that no more money is to be raised here. I ought to be superintending operations in the oil-field, so as to make the best use of the little I have raised. You, she laughed, of course I didn't have anything to do with it. He sighed deeply. You know perfectly well that I appreciate all you did. We don't seem to get on very well to-day. No she laughed again bitterly. "'So you think you'll be going, don't you?' "'To my rooms, to write some necessary letters.' "'Of course, not to pack your trunk.' "'Cora,' he returned, goaded, "'sometimes you're just impossible. I'll come to-morrow, forenoon.' "'Then don't bring the car. I'm tired of motoring and tired of lunching in that rotten hole. We can talk just as well in the library papa's better and that little fiend will be in school to-morrow come out about ten he started the machine don't forget i love you he called in a low voice she stood looking after him as the car dwindled down the street yes you do she murmured she walked up the path to the house her face thoughtful as with a tiresome perplexity in her own room divesting herself of her wraps she gave the mirror a long scrutiny it offered the picture of a girl with a hard and dreary air but cora saw something else and presently though the dreariness remained the hardness softened to a great compassion she suffered a warm wave of sorrow submerged her and she threw herself upon the bed and wept long and silently for herself at last her eyes dried and she lay staring at the ceiling the doorbell rang, and Sarah, the cook came to inform her that Mr. Richard Lindley was below. Tell him I'm out can't returned Sarah dun told him you was home and she departed firmly, thus abandoned, the prostrate lady put into a few words what she felt about Sarah, and going to the door, whisperingly summoned in Laura, who was leaving the sick-room across the hall. Richard is downstairs. Will you go and tell him I'm sick in bed? Or dead? Anything to make him go. And, assuming Laura's acquiescence, Cora went on without pause. Is father worse? What's the matter with you, Laura? Nothing. He's a little better, Miss Pierce thinks. You look ill. I'm all right. Then run along like a duck and get rid of that old boar for me. Cora? please see him? Not me. I've got too much to think about to bother with him." Laura walked to the window and stood with her back to her sister, apparently interested in the view of Corliss Street there presented. "'Cora,' she said, "'why don't you marry him and have done with all this?' Cora hooted. "'Why not? Why not marry him as soon as you can get ready? Why don't you go down now and tell him you will? Why not, Cora?' i'd as soon marry a pail of milk yes tepid milk skimmed i-don't you realize how kind he'd be to you i don't know about that said cora moodily he might object to some things but it doesn't matter because i'm not going to try him i don't mind a man's being a fool but i can't stand the absent-minded breed of idiot i've worn his diamond in the pendant right in his eyes for weeks he's never once noticed it, enough even to ask me about the pendant, but bores me to death wanting to know why I won't wear the ring. Anyhow, what's the use of talking about him? He couldn't marry me right now, even if I wanted him to, not till he begins to get something on the investment he made with Val. Outside of that, he's got nothing except his rooms at his mother's. She hasn't much either and if richard should lose what he put in with val he couldn't marry for years probably that's what made him so obstinate about it no if i ever marry right off the reel it's got to be with someone with cora laura still spoke from the window not turning aren't you tired of it all of this getting so upset about one man and then another and tired Cora uttered the word in a repressed fury of emphasis. "'I'm sick of everything. I don't care for anything or anybody on this earth, except—except you and Mama. I thought I was going to love Val. I thought I did. But, oh, my Lord, I don't. I don't think I can care any more. Or else there isn't any such thing as love. How can anybody tell whether there is or not?' you get kind of crazy over a man and want to go the limit, or marry him perhaps, or sometimes you just want to make him crazy about you. And then you get over it. And what is there left but hell?" She choked with a sour laugh. ìUgh! For heaven's sake, Laura, don't make me talk. Everything's gone to the devil, and I've got to think. The best thing you can do is to go down and get rid of Richard for me. I can't see him very well said laura and went to the door you're a darling whispered cora kissing her quickly tell him i'm in a raging headache make him think i wanted to see him but you wouldn't let me because i'm too ill she laughed give me a little time old dear i may decide to take him yet it was mrs madison who informed the waiting richard that cora was unable to see him because she was lying down and the young man, after properly inquiring about Mr. Madison, went blankly forth. Hedrick was stalking the front yard, mounted at a great height upon a pair of stilts. He joined the departing visitor upon the sidewalk, and honoured him with his company, proceeding storkishly beside him. ''Been to see Cora?'' ''Yes, Hedrick.'' ''What did you want to see her about?'' asked the frank youth seriously. Richard was able to smile. "'Nothing in particular, Hedrick.' "'You didn't come to tell her about something?' "'Nothing whatever, my dear sir. I wished merely the honour of seeing her and chatting with her upon indifferent subjects.' "'Why? Did you see her?' "'No, I'm sorry to—' "'She's home, all right,' Hedrick took pleasure in informing him. "'Yes, she was lying down, and I told your mother not to disturb her worn out with too much automobile riding, I expect," Hedrick sniffed. She goes out about every day with this Corliss in his hired roadster. They walked on in silence. Not far from Mrs. Lindley's, Hedrick abruptly became vocal in an artificial laugh. Richard was obviously intended to inquire into its cause, but, as he did not, Hedrick, after laughing hollowly for some time, volunteered the explanation. I played a pretty good trick on you last night.' "'Odd I didn't know it.' "'That's why it was good. You'd never guess it in the world.' "'No, I believe I shouldn't. You see what makes it so hard, Hedrick, is that I can't even remember seeing you last night.' "'Nobody saw me.' "'Somebody heard me, though, all right.' "'Who?' "'The nigger that works at your mother's. Joe.' "'What about it? Were you teasing Joe?' no it was you i was after well did you get me hedrick made another somewhat ghastly pretence of mirth well i guess i've had about all the fun out of it i'm going to might as well tell you it was that book of laura's you thought she sent you richard stopped short whereupon hedrick turned clumsily and began to stalk back in the direction from which they had come that book i thought she "'Sent me?' Lindley repeated, stammering. "'She never sent it,' called the boy, continuing to walk away. "'She kept it hid, and I found it. I faked her into writing your name on a sheet of paper, and made you think she sent the old thing to you. I just did it for a joke on you.' With too retching an effort to simulate another burst of merriment, he caught the stump of his right stilt in a pavement crack, wavered, cut in the air a figure like a geometrical proposition gone mad, and came whacking to earth in a magnificent disaster. Richard took him to Mrs. Lindley for repairs. She kept him until dark. Hedrick was bandaged, led, laminated, and blandished. Never in his life had he known such a listener. End of chapter 20